it's, it's ironic actually as 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 the ability to get what you want from culture mm. and your own version of enchantment has grown um so is disney and disney has been buying up all sorts of other companies it now owns lucasfilm it owns marvel um i think it's it's gotten too big to actually be able to put in the time and and effort to to be genuinely creative and so i think in this world where we have these technologies and people are able to create their own meaning and create their own enchantments something like disney just isn't going to have the same hold over the imagination it's not going to have that same power in that sense i mean the demise of, of disney and its influence is almost a bit like the decline of institutional religion Welcome to another episode of Reenchanting, the podcast from Seen and Unseen. I am Belle Tyndall. And I'm Justin Briley. And you know the drill by now. Please do like, share, subscribe, review, do all of the things, and that helps Reenchanting go far and wide. But today we have an episode with a bit of a twist. Mm. Uh, this October marks Disney's 100th birthday. And seeing as Disney are in the enchantment business, we thought we'd dedicate an episode of Reenchanting to its cultural impact. And to help us do so, we have two wonderful guests joining us. Yeah, so I'll introduce the first one, Yaroslav Skywalker. So you already win the best name contest in the room. <laughs> a very Disney name, a if very... I may say so. <laughs> yeah, so we'll just put that out there and move on. Uh, is the assistant priest of Holy Trinity Church in Sloan Square. He is married to Amy and they have two children, Lisa and the very new Misha. So congratulations Thank on that. Thank you very much. And in his spare time, he reads theology and writes many film reviews, many of which you can find on Seen and Unseen. So that's a nice mm -hmm. little plug there. Thank you very much. <laughs> and Esme Partridge also joins us. She's a writer and MPhil candidate in the philosophy of religion at the University of Cambridge. And she also works at the intersection of religion and politics, focusing on religious freedom and interfaith relations. So welcome both mm. to the podcast. Thank, Thank you for having us. Thank you. Before we get into Disney as a cultural phenomenon, so before we go wide with it, I just want to get a sense of where we'll sit with Disney. So mm. if you could tell me your relationship with the franchise, any favorite films, and just how you sort of remember it playing out, particularly in your childhood. So Yaroslav, if we start with you, mm. you and Disney. Yes. Well, um, I was born in the early 90s. So uh, as I was growing up, uh, it was... Disney's second great renaissance, I think people mm. have called it. Um, and uh, I was trying to remember, I think Mulan might be the first film I ever saw in the cinema as oh. a five or six-year-old. Oh, nice. Uh, and then I had um, all of the greats and all of the modern greats uh, on VHS and then DVD as I was growing up and uh, watched them quite religiously, I have to say. Favourite? Uh, it has to be Mulan, favourite oh, film. Oh, yeah. yeah first one I ever saw. And uh, the music is indestructible. It, in may, maybe that is mm. because it was the first one. And it I makes think. that impression. Yeah. yeah, I know what you mean. Mm. Esme, what, what's your relationship with Disney? So I was born in the millennium. So Disney's still very popular. It was very much the uh, selection of films that we had in our school, which we'd play at the end of term, uh, you know, that kind of Friday afternoon film. Yeah. Funnily enough, my parents, and specifically my father, are actually quite anti-Disney or oh. rather anti-American right. influence altogether. So <laughs> they didn't, uh, they made a point of not having the Disney channel. So I associate Disney with watching it at friends' houses and mm. at school. And it was kind of exciting for the very reason that it wasn't really there in my own 
uh, household. Yeah, I have that. My parents were antsy, but we just couldn't afford it. So I have the exact same thing. <laughs> yes. Like the Disney Channel is a luxury, like a sleepover mm. luxury. That's what's in my mind as well. My name's Belle, so I won't even go into what my <laughs> what my favorite Disney film is. Whole, whole songs about you, Belle, <laughs> in the Disney repertoire. Yeah. I, I I seem one of my early memories of cinema is probably The Little Mermaid. I think that was probably the first mm. Disney film I saw. Was that late eighties, early nineties? I can't remember. Eighty nine. Eighty nine. There you go. I knew. Yeah. I knew we. Uh, we were gonna. <laughs> We've got a Disney expert yeah, with us, do. evidently. Here. Yeah. Good. Okay, so dig deep for this one. Most underrated Disney film or character? Hmm. I would say Fantasia, and oh. I think the reason it's probably not quite so appreciated these days is that. I don't think it's very well suited to the modern attention span. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a very long film. Yeah. And yeah. it's somewhere between a classical music concert and an experimental cartoon. Um, but for that reason, I think it's really quite groundbreaking. It's philosophically quite interesting as well. There's this, this almost kind of German romantic uh, undertone really to the whole thing. And, mm. and, you know, you sort of got all these very, at the time, exciting animations to... Beethoven and Tarkovsky and it really is enchanting I think in the in the truest sense of the of the term great uh, I'd have to say the black cauldron oh, um wow. I can't remember late 70s early 80s um and uh, I became obsessed with it because for a while it was one of the only Disney films we actually had on VHS mm. so I would watch it as children do over and over and over again and later in life I I realized it's um it's based on Welsh mythology and there's a young hero protagonist he has to uh do something to defeat a horned demon king. There's a black cauldron, there are fairies. Um, it's a uh, narrative structure is a little looser um, and, uh, and more meandering than your traditional Disney film. Mm. Um, but uh, I think um, as I've gotten older, uh, seeing that link to Welsh mythology as well mm. just makes it uh, quite special. Um, yeah. And it is, it is genuinely brilliant and wasn't mm. as well received as I think it should have been. There you go. Mm. Well, that, let's hear it for the black cauldron. Um, I, I guess we didn't even need to tell anyone what Disney is. It's just something everyone knows. It's an iconic sort of brand and uh, yes, celebrating obviously 100 years this month. Um, why has it just become such an all-encompassing phenomenon? I don't know, Esme, if you have any thoughts on why it's been so big in our world. I think it's possibly because it emerges sort of around a similar time as modern industrial modernity so kind of on the one hand you have this sort of Iberian kind of you know, iron cage this new kind of rationalized quite um a sort of de, de is that a word devernacular a kind of, a kind of loss of, of folk culture yes. and tradition yeah, I know what you mean. and then I think Disney although by no means is you know necessarily an authentic form of folk um, culture <laughs> it does at least revive this this folk fantasy mm. element that people like. And so I think that in stark contrast with with this new industrial modernity is maybe quite appealing so to the, people. So the fairy tales that really marked those early films were, were kind of doing that effectively, bringing yeah. that back into people's lives. Yeah, and I mean, I think if you think of that contrast, I'm, I'm talking about Weber just because I think it's so key to the mm. enchantment subject, but also this, you know, he describes pre-modernity as this enchanted garden and modernity as an iron cage. And mm. so I think... In the context of that iron cage, this the imagery of fairies and the kind of enchantment mm. of nature as well, which you see in films like Fantasia, is really um, alluring to mm. people. It, it, it speaks to something that's often lost in that new, that brave new mm. world. Yeah, I watched um, 
that speaking of the Little Mermaids, I watched the live action. Um, oh yes, the re recent remake. Yeah, mm. the recent remake. I watched that on the weekend, and so that's the first time in a good many years that I've watched one of those Disney classics. And I must say that that intro where the star goes over the Disney mm -hmm. castle and the music. If someone had asked me what would that spark in you, I'd say very little. But actually listening to it sparked so much so they've so powerfully re-enchanted us mm. um what do you think Yaroslav do you see a similar thing did it just come at the right time um I I'd say I th definitely think um it came at the right time I, I would agree with um Esme wholeheartedly I'd also mm. um say that I think just the sheer amount of output sure. is, the, uh, is the other thing when I first started thinking about um this podcast and what Disney means I I think like most of us could think of 10 films, probably all animated, that really mm. Um, mm. Uh, summed Disney up. But then when I started researching its outputs, you know, 50 films a year at some point, that might be an exaggeration, but at least 30 <laughs> films mm. a year, not all um, animated, a lot of live sure. action. They've, uh, they've produced far more films than they've ever actually directed themselves. So as well mm. as you know, going to pre-modern myths and folklore and reintroducing them to a new generation, they also just they haven't stopped. Mm. And when you have so much output, you're going to get some really smashing hits that just bind the collective imagination as well. Mm, that's so interesting, because when I was actually right up until you mentioned it, Esme, I hadn't even thought about the channel. My mind was just in those animated films. I hadn't thought about, you know, your high school musicals and your everything they're still mm, doing. Mm. So you're right. It was just an absolute like bombardment mm. of enchantment. So, but, like, you know. And, and, and on top of that, there's the theme parks, obviously, you know, all, yeah. all over the world. You've got, you know, I, I've been to one of them, the, the, the one in California. Uh, oh, and to Euro Disney as well. And that, that it's very much is about putting you into this magical world. You know, it's yeah. got the different themed worlds anyway. And, you know, they're all tied into various films and things. But throughout it all i think disney have always pressed mm. this idea of they want to enchant you they want to put you in a different world into kind of you know uh, an imaginary place um i mean how how successful have they been would you say I, I mean is it just that you can lose yourself in a film for an hour or two um have they kind of actually made an impact on the way we think about enchanting our culture would you say uh yaroslav what do you think i think i think they have and and going back um to what esme was saying i think they definitely have uh as rationalism um, has sort of stormed its way through the culture. Uh, they have been quite a nice antidote. Um, I think the fact that uh, with a lot of the films, they've placed a very clear emphasis uh, on innocence um, mm. and uh, reintroducing and protecting uh, childhood innocence to a degree, um, uh, having some fairly black and white storylines, having characters that are just good and bad. Um, has meant that uh, that they've done quite a powerful work in in, in enchanting. I think also um, the the focus uh, on animation mm. um, has been quite a big thing. Um, I've really struggled to put it into words when thinking about it, but I think there is something about the animated film and going back before the digital age, specifically hand-drawn mm. animation. There's this extra step of imaginative creativity mm. compared to doing something live action, mm. um, which I think does does enchant. Um, there's a, a, I can't remember where Rowan Williams was giving a lecture about uh, fiction and novels. Um, and it was about uh, novels, uh, uh, ethical vehicles, in a sense, because you they put you into a frame of mind that's almost like God, because to appreciate a novel, you have to appreciate 
the characters. You have to empathize with the characters. Mm. And I think animation does something in a different way, a bit like that. That extra creative endeavor in making mm. the film work means that you're yeah. taking an extra step to suspend your disbelief and mm. enter a world. The, the medium in that sense yeah. has helped to, to deliver that that message. What, what do you think of that, Esme? I, mean, I think that's a really, a really good point and I would agree. I mean, I, I think sometimes it's important to sort of question what do we mean by enchantment and mm -hmm. also ask the question of are there different kinds of enchantment and also are all of them good? Um, because I think maybe this is a cynical perspective on Disney, but I'm sure it's one that, you know, maybe, uh, you know, Guy Debord or someone like that would have on Disney is this idea of spectacle and actually mm. the notion of enchanting people and sort of engrossing them and kind of keeping them fixated in this imaginary world, yes, can be a, a positive thing and can can inspire sort of the good within within people. And um, but at the same time can also be a distraction or a kind of spectacle, I suppose. Mm. And so I think the term enchantment is kind of loaded because just because something in, excites your senses or or arouses your imagination, that doesn't mean it's necessarily authentically sacred or good. It can it can also, as I say, be a be a kind of distraction or even a deception. Um, that's a very negative a negative view. But mm. I think I suppose that's that would probably be a more critical take on mm. the kind of enchantment that Disney provides. Is it really to sort of keep people? Um, in this fairy world as a kind of distraction from the harsh realities of that yes. more iron cage uh, mm. society that's emerging at the same time. Yeah, that made me, as I was thinking about this episode and sort of thinking, I was like, a question popped into my mind because we've had a hundred years of Disney being in our public consciousness. And like you say, we don't even need to explain what it is. That's how at the forefront it is. So what's interesting following on from your question, Esme, is, is there anything that we have here in 2023 for better or for worse that simply would not be there if it weren't for a hundred years worth of Disney in our, and that's, a, I know that's a really tricky and abstract question, but like, have they just sat us down for an hour and a half at a time? Have they just got us to theme parks or has that, or has their impact broken the banks of themselves? If you know what I mean? Yaroslav, you're looking very pansive. Do you want us to go to Esme first? <laughs> please <laughs> hit us as me <laughs> i mean i guess going back to my earlier point a bit i think that had disney not existed it's possible that we might have completely lost that love of folk culture and of and of those traditional fairy tales mm. um and i think it has in a way preserved that i mean at the same time yes it's brought this this kind of hegemony in a way of sort of what you know that you, you might lose much more sort of niche and culturally specific folk tales to these big famous ones, which everyone knows in, in Europe and America um, because of Disney. So maybe it has kind of uh, monopolized uh, mm. myths and fairy tales, yeah. but nonetheless, I think it has preserved them. And so I would commend it for that and say mm. that that may well be something that, that wouldn't be the case uh, had Disney not existed. Yeah, uh, I mean, something I've noticed in a way is that in more recent years, there's been a trend towards rather than simply retelling in the Disney way, those classic fairy tales like Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, you know, and, and even, you know, Beauty and the Beast and so on, which were give, given still a fairly kind of standard treatment. There, there's, there's been almost a, a subverting sometimes of the story. So now you get films like Maleficent, which is sort of told from the perspective of the, uh, you know, the witch who cast the spell on Sleeping Beauty and all that kind of thing. And you suddenly realise... The, the the life she had that led her to those choices that kind of thing or or I, I don't think this is Disney but um the Wizard of Oz and that sort of thing mm. um where now you've got Wicked which is kind of telling it from the point of view of the the Wicked Witch of the West and so on so do you think like 
we've almost got to the point now where we feel like, oh, those are a bit too simplistic, those sort of fairy tale understandings of life. And they are too black and white in that sense. So you mentioned that word yourself, Yaroslav, I think that it, 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 are people, are Disney and the, the world kind of feeling like we need to move beyond those sort of uh, ways of telling these stories. I think Disney definitely is. And I think they are probably following um, a broader trend. Mm. Um, and uh, C.S. Lewis was was writing about this trend um, after the Second World War and so slightly decrying the fact uh, that you can't seem to have a, a hero who's a hero anymore or a villain who's a villain. Everyone has to mm. be complex. Uh, now that Disney's taken over Marvel, you've seen this in the Marvel films especially, I'm not sure they've actually had a genuinely just bad, evil <laughs> villain um, uh, at any point anymore. They've always got uh, a purpose where, you know, there was this discourse after uh, the end of the first phase of the Marvel films, Thanos was right. You know, yes. there, there is this great utilitarian sense in which mm. destroying half of the organic matter of the mm. universe is a good thing. Um, I'm, I'm not too fond of it. Uh, you know, I'm a Christian. I do think that there... There is such a thing as just analoid good and the analoid absence of good. And I think that we are losing something if we don't have a vehicle, especially of you know, which Disney was, I suppose, through um, from its very beginning of moral instruction um, to uh, to our children, um, where we can't just say this is just a bad act. This is a good act. This is a bad person doing a bad thing. This is a good person. So I, I, would... I, I mean, at the same time. Life is more nuanced than that, I suppose, in defense of Disney's slightly postmodern turn, um, because, you know, very rarely is someone just an evil person. They're usually a whole combination of things that have led them to do an evil act. Mm. But I don't know, Esme, what do you think? Do you think that, that this is just Disney kind of being more realistic? You know, you said that maybe they were distracting us with fairy tales was, was one thing. Maybe they're just entering the real world a bit more with these sorts of stories. I mean, I, I probably would side with you on this. I think that essentialization is actually quite necessary for a fairy tale. I mean, it is supposed to be giving a simplistic account in the same way that fairy tales usually comprise a stock of archetypes, mm. um, a sort of set of fixed personas. And, it, mm. and, it, and they, they are self-aware of the fact that they are generalizing and they are essentializing. But that's quite necessary, especially to a younger audience. I think actually having those tropes and quite clear-cut ideas mm. of good and evil and those being reflected in, in personalities mm. quite graphically um, sometimes is, is a good thing. Um, and I would also say that I, I'm skeptical that Disney have really, you know, gone about this postmodern turn in any way that's kind of really meaningful. I think it's probably more to accommodate the demands of that postmodern society right. itself. It's kind of, it's it's almost like that's that's the market, isn't it? Yes. It's people don't like these clear-cut ideas of good and evil. And so Disney just in attempt to, to please that audience is, is possibly, um, yeah, trying to complex, complex. And I think, I think you can push back against the use of the word realism because, I mean, they are more realistic in a sense. They, they reflect the state of, uh, material psychological existence mm. but behind that reality you know, there is the greater reality of almighty god mm. and almighty god is you know actually ultimately simple and that simplicity is is good and and love there's there's no sort of nuance of well maybe if i did just you know kill this person right then then you know the the calculus of benefit would mm. be there is there is just pure unabounding love and yet yeah, as esme said showing that in archetypes again especially for children who don't necessarily think about things in the mm. nuanced way a 20th century 
French philosopher who can't, <laughs> who can't escape the sound of his own voice would. They, they sometimes do just need mm. things put out in black mm. and white. What's interesting, I think, about Disney, and we're talking specifically about this good and evil, is that it takes a lot of profound belief to assume that good will always beat evil. And if that belief is more, is, is draining out of the world, you know, like when Martin Luther King said, the arc of history is long, but it does bend towards justice. That's a profoundly like faith-fueled, not necessarily even Christian faith-fueled, although he was, and I would say that it is, but do you know what I mean? That requires a lot of faith. So it's interesting that it's almost like a, are Disney sort of saying, do we still hold, by what grounds, on what grounds can we hold this absolutely undying belief that good will always win? You know, and you have the same in like Narnia and Tolkien, but you know where their, where their belief in those things came from. And it's almost like Disney, like, can we tell people that good always triumphs? Can we tell people that like innocence and purity win out over evil? Can we still do that? Is that still okay? Is that true? So that's quite interesting as well. Um, there is a lot of talk about Disney at the moment, um, about needing to rethink it, about it rethinking itself, as we've already touched upon. And what I find really interesting about that conversation is that it's happening all across the cultural spectrum, which is really interesting. You know, I, I'm reluctant to be so binary about it, but you have some very progressive voices um, saying Disney needs to change. And you have some very sort of more conservative voices saying the same thing, but for very different reasons. So I'd love to just touch on those with you and kind of get your thoughts on those, if that's okay. And um, let's start with sort of what, I say this in ear quotes, the more pro like progressive voices are saying. So we're about to have a new Snow White and our new Snow White, Rachel Zegler, I think it is. Mm -hmm. um, She's sort of been in the headlines for saying, you know, the 1937 storyline will not hold up in 2024 as it is, as it will be. Um, and therefore it's radically changed. And, you know, she's detailed how um, and, and she sees that as a really good thing. Um, and also, if you look at any of the remakes, they've slightly tweaked it, you know, to sort of better sit with our modern sensibilities. What do you think about that? Are you like you know, yes, these are being shown to children and, and they need to be rethought and we shouldn't hold things just because we hold them. Um, or are you sort of not in that place? As my should we go to you first? I mean, I think I'd have to see it to see the way that it's done because yeah. I think sometimes when people try and rewrite these stories, they do it in a way which feels intentionally subversive and that kind of just detracts from the story mm. itself. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? When mm. they try and remake something really just in, in a way that's so polemically charged almost against itself um i think that can often just be well it's not really very interesting to 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 watch and i also i suppose i also fear that there's a danger that without knowing it uh, without realizing it these that you know those who want to remake these films they're actually just as guilty as imposing an ideology onto it and the chances are that the writers of a film in the 1950s okay they they're just going along with the stereotypes at the time I'm not mm. saying that's necessarily necessarily good or that that doesn't need reflection um but they're not actually making something to be political whereas i think there's a danger that when people try to rewrite these things they usually are explicitly being political mm. um and i would be quite keen to sort of keep that out of uh, out of fiction uh, and, and and out of out of disney yeah mm. no, I'd, I'd absolutely agree um i i think the the first point to agree with esme is that um it's often just done really badly Mm -hmm. where they, they take the bones <laughs> of the story and then they put in two or three soliloquies uh, into the mouths of characters that just wouldn't speak like that and where actually the rest mm. of the script of the remake and the rest of the film, it jars so horribly. So 
let's start with actually doing it well and then mm-hmm. we can give it a fair showing. I'd, I'd have to um, see it. But um, uh, I, th- I think my issue with it, and you know, I am a social and moral conservative, I suppose, but, uh, but I'm, I'm very happy for there to be the public discourse and conversation mm-hmm. in the culture. Um, uh, my uh, question about it would be, why, why do it in Snow White? You know, this, is, this is possibly one of the most beloved things Disney has ever produced. I mean, it, it stands in the top five in, I think, any poll that's ever taken. Um, it is possible to do this not tarnishing a, a beloved artifact that people have invested so much of themselves into. Um, you know, it's not Disney, but Shrek did that really mm. well, and that's mm. a DreamWorks production, but it, it does it brilliantly. It skewers all of those archetypes. It, it mm. still manages to be quite meaningful at the end. Um, but you see Disney did that in 2007 with, uh, with Enchanted, um, where a Disney character comes into the real world. Um, and starts to break some of those Prince Charming tropes because when Prince Charming comes to rescue her, she insists, mm. no, no, I've learned a bit mm-hmm. about what relationships mean. We're going to go on a first date. I'm not mm. just going to let you kiss mm. me mm. and it'll mm. all be fine. And you know, uh, uh, in the end, it, it works out very well. So yes, I, like Esme, I'd need to see it, but don't do it with Snow White. Make something, make something be genuinely imaginative. That's what propelled Disney into what it is. Well, as a bit of a social conservative then, Yaroslav, and uh, be interested in, in Esme's take on this as you well. You put it out there. I though. really <laughs> wish I hadn't yeah. said it. As soon as you said it, I thought, oh. Yeah. Well, I, only that one of the trends in that sense, and perhaps it's very understandable, is that, that Disney, both in its remakes, but also in its fresh films, has, has in a sense aimed, I think, to give its female leads and parts more of their own agency, not simply there as the princess to be woken by Prince Charming and 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 so on. I, I got this very much there was a switch when the frozen film came yeah. out and and that was you know a film where for the first time i forget the, the the sort of index that people give this term but but essentially there there was a kind of certain type of um rating you could give a film mm. as to how much it the the main female leads were dependent essentially on a romantic relationship with yeah. a male character and this didn't have that these were just mm. you know female leads in their own right um and that was seen as a, you know applauded as something that was good mm. I mean, is that a problem from your perspective that, in a sense, it's being pushed in that direction to say, look, we need to to, to kind of understand that some of these old ways in which women were portrayed in Disney films need to, to be, you know, re-engaged? Um, I, I would say it's a it's a problem, but let me pass that so that I don't I've given get you a very tricky a question. No, no, it's, <laughs> I, no I, 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 it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fantastic question. Um, I don't think it was a problem with Frozen because uh, Frozen, uh, the message there was still about uh, the fundamental importance of, of relationship and, and connection. Uh, and it was you know, a very good spiritual and, and Christian message because there um, it's the dependence of sisters mm-hmm. on each other and the, the sisterly bond. And you know, my wife is one of three sisters. She loves Frozen for that very reason. She was so happy that uh, you know, it wasn't true love's kiss. It was, uh, I think it's the kiss between the two sisters that, that actually solves the problem. Um, uh, so I, I don't think there is a problem that uh, the female characters are being given more of a voice or more agency. Um, uh, I think the problem is when that agency is is singular and absolutely individualized. Mm. Um, uh, you know, I would say the same thing about a film where a male character is just the hero. He doesn't need anyone. He does it on his own. I think mm. so much of Disney, going back to Snow White, 
Um, you know, Snow White relies on the seven dwarfs. The seven dwarfs rely on each other. They learn to rely on her. She becomes something of a mother figure to her, getting as much from them as they do from her. We'll park True Love's Kiss from uh, <laughs> Prince Charming for a second, but but there there is always, nevertheless, this sense that that community and relationship and loving relationship, truly mm. loving mm. Uh, relationship, um, is important. Um, this was the problem. I watched the remake of Mulan. It is my favorite Disney film, mm. um, and uh, I, I I try not to hate things. I really didn't like it for a number of reasons. Getting rid of the music and getting rid of an Ed Eddie Murphy dragon are two massive <laughs> problems to, to begin yeah. with. But, but in the remake of Mulan, she's absolutely brilliant from the age of eight. She right. can already do everything. Mm. Um, she doesn't go through any sort of actual cycle of, of growth in the film, except to understand that she is actually already brilliant. Right. And, and that's how she wins the day. She wins physical contests. She can't actually in real life um, win uh, just by going, no, I am, I am actually great. Right. And I've been held down. And there is definitely an important message there that, that needs to be made, but they, it gets made too much of, and it leads to this absolute fetishization of the individual, which there I do think is a problem. Has mm. any thoughts on? I completely um, agree with that, and and again, sort of without wanting to, to stray into too too much controversial territory, <laughs> I think that's um, that's for me anyway one of the issues I would have with modern feminism, and indeed the way that that is reflected in these new films is that instead of trying to work towards a healthy, strong, cooperative relationship between the sexes, it's asserting independence in a way which I. I see more as symptomatic of a kind of capitalist, sort of individualistic, you know, atomized society rather than anything I think is that empowering. I think the most empowering thing is to be able to work together within a community and 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 be humble, I think, and recognize the need for cooperation. Um, and yes, I would also um, really agree with, with your point um, about, well, why do they sort of choose to rewrite old stories? Why don't they just create new ones? Yeah. And again, I think that's one of the biggest issues I have with this this kind of culture of you know sort of constantly kind of revising and, and criticizing the past is that it sort of seems to destroy more than create um and you know since you mentioned social conservatism I guess it's that Scrutonian sentiment isn't it that you know good things are easily destroyed but not easily created and Absolutely. I think yeah. with these new D Disney remakes they mm. would much rather a kind of deconstruct as it were and ultimately destroy the original storylines rather than actually innovate and make something mm. new that's that's going to inspire people for what it is not just as a as a criticism of, of mm. what it was yeah so plain devil's advocate then do you not see anything problem not I don't know if problematic's the right word but do you not see there needs to be a discussion around things such as true love's kiss particularly when one of the well the recipient of the kiss is unconscious etc cetera, etc cetera. <laughs> how would you surely if we're giving those films to children does there need to, surely there needs to be some slight conversation or do you think that that's really just overthinking it and they don't really think that it's okay for people to kiss them when they're asleep even if, you know am I overthinking it I, I did actually struggle with this question because I'm kind of in two minds because yeah. I think on the one hand I mean well, basically everything I, I just said I am quite skeptical towards sort of deconstructing and revising it mostly because it's always just overtly political and, and I, I don't think that's a, yeah. a good a good look um, but then I, I do actually sympathize with with that perspective um, I think there is a reason why these conversations are being had uh, and even if it is a small thing in a film mm. like that, then especially with young people watching, you know that could shape what they deem to be normal. So mm. I am, I am sort of 
tentative towards this whole question of, of kind of you know modernization but i do i will say that i do i do sympathize with with your point i mean i don't know what do, what do you think i'm not 100 percent sure that when walt disney started creating animations for children he he wanted to push um a, a narrative about uh female submission no. um <laughs> uh, i i mean um i i'm slightly um skeptical of that um uh i think uh, we're in danger of, of just agreeing throughout the entire podcast. Um, I, I think I think Esme's laid it out very well. Um, I, I wouldn't deny that there are conversations to be had about a, a non-consensual kiss, uh, you know, in animation, in Spanish football, in in anything like mm. that. This is a particularly pertinent question now. Yeah. Um, again, just going back to children and their innocence. Um, I grew up on all of those Disney films. Mm. And at no point did I think that uh, the non-consensual kiss of a sleeping person um, was, a, was a good mm. thing. I think children um, have a much better ability than adults actually, both to, um, because they are so innocent, um, to, to see the true reality behind the reality. They can suspend their disbelief and live in a world of dragons and you know, poisoned apples, curses of sleep and true love's kiss, while at the same time, recognizing that, okay, that's not necessarily how I live my life every mm. single day. And just to defend True Love's Kiss for a second, I think we also need to remember that just, just within, within the structure of that narrative, that, that is always their true love. It's, it's you know, yes. they've deconstructed it with non-True Love's Kiss and then it's definitely problematic, but that is, there's, there's an element of, of destiny and, and fate there, which can definitely lead people into, you know, bad patterns of thinking, but... Mm. You know, also, a, a, a quite a, quite healthy in, mm. in a sense. I mean, one area where I, I would like to come in on in defence of Disney's sort of modern take on things is I, I I have appreciated the move away from the kind of ridiculously proportioned heroines who are you know beautiful in ways that most people can't aspire to to kind of actually increasingly in more recent films, a more kind of realistic representation of the diversity of how people look. I'm, I'm thinking of Encanto in particular, mm -hmm. where the, the, the young heroine is not this kind of svelte, six and a half foot blonde yeah. person. You see but, that in Moana as well. A, a more, yeah, mm -hmm. a, and a lot more kind of, and I, I've, I've actually thought that's, a, I've appreciated that because actually that, that is just more realistic. These characters I didn't find any less enthralling or, or interesting because of it. But, but I, I wonder whether that, might be something where, where you know, a move towards a sort of, you know, modern sensibilities might might be a, an advantage. But feel free to disagree with me if you if you do disagree. Uh, Esme, do you, any thoughts on that? Um, I am going to pass on that one. <laughs> I think this, well, I, th I think it just points to a a general um, sort of chasm between do you view film and indeed art in general as something that's supposed to be realistic and representational or idealistic and. Mm aspirational and I, I definitely think there's a point to be made about well you know the media do have a huge responsibility as to what they are going to make the aspirational coveted ideal um and you know historically that has had very very severe consequences i mean you've only mm. got to look at sort of modeling mm. you know models from the 90s and the wave mm. of eating disorders which was so obviously um a consequence of that so i i would agree that that films and indeed anyone who's anyone who's putting content into such a huge um, public space with such a huge audience um, does have that responsibility for shaping the ideals. I think it's just a question of 
you know, how can we ensure that ideals are, are sort of positive? I think we need a new idealism, which is based on virtue and, and moral character rather than you know, superficial things like perfect appearance. So I would probably agree with you hmm. um, in, in some respects. Yeah. Again, too much agreement. But yes, I, 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 I have no um, I have no qualms. I, I think I agree. It's, it's probably very positive that there is uh, more of that sense of, of representation. Mm. Um, uh, you know, Esme brought up character. Um, I think going back to those older films where that more um, the traditional um, uh, standard of, of beauty mm. was on display, um, I, I'm struggling to think of a film where that uh, unattainable standard of beauty, and again, they were cartoons, was, was, the, was the main thing about the person. Mm. Um, you know, Snow White and Cinderella and Belle from Beauty and the Beast, you know, are all meant to be incredibly beautiful, almost unattainably beautiful characters. But the thing that actually makes them engaging characters is that they're all just very morally good people. They're good, mm. they're kind, they're caring. Um, that's what enchants you about them, um, not so much their appearance. It, it's only that it was often, I suppose, immorality was often associated with the ugly hag you know the witch yeah. and and so again that's i think something we're perhaps moving away from because mm. if you mm. only ever see beauty associated with goodness mm. and ugliness associated with evil mm. then that that maybe is is a problematic mm. I, i'm really glad you raised that point um and it, it reminds me of all the roald dahl controversy actually mm. because something that um roald dahl almost always did was depict evil characters as ugly yes. um, and good characters as beautiful. And I actually think though, that from a from a Christian perspective, but more broadly um, theist perspective, um, I think there's, there's really something quite profound about that actually, because it points to the convertibility of the transcendental. So the idea that there's an equation between the true, the good and the beautiful. And so something which is truly beautiful is necessarily also good. And I think actually, while yes, we can be in danger of essentializing people and, and you know, we don't want to reduce things too much to physical appearance. I think by by presenting, particularly to a younger audience, an evil character as ugly and a, and a good character as beautiful, there's actually a very profound symbolic um, significance to that mm. because you're instilling it in their minds basically this this very quite theological idea of the convertibility of those of those transcendentals. So. Um, I, from that perspective, I, I am probably in favor with. You prefer the archetype it. over the mm. sort of the modern. Well, I'm a Platonist, so I would say. <laughs> well, so. I'm, glad, <laughs> so I would, I would I'm glad we got both Scruton and the Transcendentals <laughs> into a yeah, into a podcast. Well. But, but I think I think the other thing to say about that, um, uh, going off what Esme said, is that um, a lot of those ugly characters do do they make themselves. Ugly. They turn themselves. They into turn a, themselves ugly. Right, so so okay, I mean I think right. the classic example is in Snow White. Um, mm. the, the queen is actually she's she's beautiful. Um, if if anything, um, she's uh, she's more sort of got a more imposing, um, sort of um, stark beauty than Snow White does. Um, uh, but she turns herself ugly through, sort of an, an act of turning in on herself. Right. Um, and so I think there, there's again the, the reality behind the reality. There's an even deeper message which a, which a, a child especially could pick up on mm. of that if I think nothing but of myself. And if I'm so focused, again, the beast, you know, the, the mm. actually a very handsome man in the beginning, it's through his own selfishness that he becomes mm. um, the beast, that if I um, am so self-obsessed and focused on myself uh, to the exclusion of everyone else, I become ugly on the inside and that will change me. And in the film that's expressed mm. as ugly. That's expressed on, in, a, in a physical on, sense, yeah, but at, at no point I think do yeah. they yeah. make it 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I think the the mutability mm. of being you know good and be, mm. being being ugly and, and evil and then being able to transform yourself into good is also a deeply Christian mm. message because it's you know your evil is not inherent. Well, may, maybe if you believe in total depravity, then it is. But that's, <laughs> uh, it's, we move away from that. No, so, um, but, on this but the idea that there is this potential to become good and that it's not mm. predestined and you yes. you, know, you can change mm. um, that's something to be commended. Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting about the about they 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 sort of do it to themselves. But I suppose the the issue with physical beauty being moral beauty is that way where we would say that one is objective the other is undeniably subjective and what people are being fed what is is a very subjective view of what beauty is and then they're being told that this must be objective because moral beauty is goodness just is goodness so if i'm showing that through beauty then this beauty is just beauty do you think there's that element to it potentially mm. uh, but again, I'd, I'd just be, I'd be skeptical about just how much that forms people's understanding of goodness, truth, beauty, and mm. and especially of of themselves. I I mean, you could draw a line between between the Disney princesses of old and the modern spate of eating disorders. Um, uh, I think you have to work quite hard to get to that line. I think there's so many other things. Mm. Um, in the world. Um, I, I mean, I think going back to Justin's original question, I think um, those were the subjective beauty standards of the day. They wanted to create beautiful people to show you know, what goodness and beauty can be. And so they portrayed them in that way. And that is slowly changing. And mm. you know, I don't think any of us would say that that's a bad thing. But the, the point is, we're not meant to think that somebody um, like Moana or a character in Coco are ugly. We are meant to think that they are beautiful and mm -hmm. i think people do mm -hmm. um uh you know it's the, the standards may have changed i don't think the films are trying to impose uh an absolute sense of beauty that everybody fits into in that sense i think mm. that's giving them too much credit if anything uh, i mean you've also got concerns especially coming out of the usa and florida um where one of the big disney worlds is based and where ron DeSantis, you know a conservative candidate for president is is based um of whether Disney are pushing a very progressive agenda. You know, a lot of people have accused them of, of pushing a sort of LGBT, quote unquote, woke agenda in some of their recent films and series and so on. Uh, there's even been, you know, people boycott, calling for boycotts on Disney and so on. Now, um, I, I just wonder what you think of that sort of that other end of the spectrum where people feel like, hey, this has gone too far. We're, we're, we're sort of, we're, we're, we feel like we're being preached to politically at this point rather than it just being family entertainment or whatever. Um, Esme, any thoughts on that? I mean, I think it it does reflect ultimately a desire to appeal to the modern audience. I think um, I, I think you know that that is how the market works. I guess doesn't it? It, it is about supply mm. and demand. Um, and so I, I think that if if tides were to were to turn and you, we found ourselves in a West that was more socially conservative, not that that, that seems very sort of likely of happening, um, but for like, say hypothetically, then I think in turn, Disney would also probably try and reflect that. I mean, it is a major corporation. It has got financial- The, the profit is interest. the bottom line, basically. Yeah, and yes. I, mean, I wouldn't usually give an analysis that's that reductive. I mean, sure, I'm sure people high up at Disney probably do quite strongly believe in these ideas and, and see their their duty as being to to propagate them in some way. So I, I don't think that the protesters are, are completely- unjustified i think because also you know these changes have come in very very quickly i mean a lot of quite sort of normal opinions on these things five ten years ago 
uh, have been quite radically questioned, and I think that that does that does unsettle people because they think, oh, hang on, I, you know, I'm not I'm not evil. I just believe these 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 certain norms, and and I think that 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 is it's the it's the pace of change I think that that unsettles a lot of people. Um, yeah, Esla. Yeah, I I think to be reductive for a moment, I think Esme's right. I think there is a a, a profit incentive behind mm -hmm. it. Um, the the loudest voices um, in uh, in our society commenting on social issues. Um, these days do seem to be more progressive voices. And, you know, I don't think that Bob Iger is an LGBTQ plus ally. I think he's a man who wants to make as much money for his company as possible. And so will will um, try to reflect what he sees in the press um, and in his social circles. Um, again, you know, I am a social moral conservative, but uh, part of that involves a, a healthy public discourse. So I'm not opposed to any of this being in the media or in the culture if it is genu genuinely reflecting um, uh, a conversation. I don't think you need to boycott it. I think you just don't take your children to see it. It's, it's that simple. You don't need to be quite so intentional about it. There are, there are you know, parents to a large degree, it's getting harder and harder in the digital age, but they do shape the viewing habits of their children. You cannot take them to see a film. My biggest problem, again, is more an aesthetic point. It's done really, really badly. Um, it's either crowbarred in in a way that completely detracts from the rest of the film or it's really, really throwaway, almost to be unnatural, almost to be what was the point. I, I think uh, the Lightyear movie got um, uh, into hot water for featuring um, a gay kiss. It was, it was one gay kiss. There was nothing necessary about it. It didn't make a, any broader point. It was almost put in there as an elephant trap for conservative viewers um, to, to start, a, to foment a bit of trouble. Um, so, yeah, I just think it's done very badly. If I saw a real genuine attempt at it that could be, you could consider mm. this was a good piece mm. of art, uh, that would be something interesting to discuss. Um, the final thing I'd say on it is I think these are very American conservative discussions. And, and not to sound yeah. like your dad for a second, <laughs> I, 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 really, I, really do, I really do think it's problematic how much mm. um, of our social and political discourse we seem to be being allowed to be moulded and influenced by an American discussion that actually is, I mean, American conservatism and British conservatism may have started in similar yeah. soil, but they've yeah. grown into radically different trees. Mm. Um, and so I don't think we should be taking too many talking cues from yeah. angry men and women on YouTube and TikTok mm. wanting to boycott things. On either side of the on, spectrum. On either side of I mean, the debate, absolutely. <laughs> just Americanization, generally. Well, I say that talking about Disney, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, interesting points. Um, so if it was done really well, would you still have the same issues, do you think? That was an interesting point you made at the end if, if it was done really well i would may have i may have personal issues personal moral issues um uh, about a, a portrayal in a film mm. uh it, of course i would you know i i have um you know moral qualms about lots of things that i don't think are necessarily good uh for society or for the individual um uh you know i i, I don't i don't want to i don't want to ban anything Mm. Um, mm. I'm a very wet liberal in that respect. <laughs> I, you know, I don't particularly um, uh, want to ban well too many things. Um, if it was done well, I would see it as something that has merit mm. to be in the public mm. discourse. It, it's when it's done really badly. I don't want to ban it. I just want to say this is this is just an ugly thing. Not not because the thing it's portraying is necessarily ugly, but it's just been done in such a bad way. It's 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 not been it's not a good piece of art. Mm. So it's not really worthy of, of discussion. Yeah. Um, you can say the same thing about American films. The, the whole spate of of you know, particularly right-wing Christian films about the rapture, for example, they're just really bad films. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible scripts yeah. and bad performances and they're shot badly. Don't ban them, just don't watch them. I mean, so what, what's your oval take 100 years on 
you know, from since I don't know that first um, little cartoon of Steamboat Willie or whatever it was that, that that Walt Disney created. Do you think Disney have kind of have carried that mantle well? Where do you think they're doing a good job of what they were first, you know, created to do in that sense? I mean. I think if you mean enchantment, yes. um, Disney as an enchanting force, is that still the case? Um, I think no, but I think that that's because in general, it's not specific to, to, to Disney. It's just that enchantment nowadays, I think is much more democratized um, in the sense that whereas once you had these mass institutions, even like the BBC, you had Disney, these major companies that everybody is exposed to, they are kind of in control of a sort of, you know, um, manipulating the the kind of symbols and the imaginative uh, life of, of of the masses um that you know those are no longer having that kind of effect nowadays you know everybody has a smartphone people are able to access and create very very individualized content um and i mean something i've written about quite a lot is the question of enchantment and tiktok um, and mm. social media um because on tiktok you see all these really quite fascinating trends of you know young women for example getting into witchcraft or witch talk witch talk yes. i read your article it was it was fascinating oh thank yes. you and also you know these other ideas like reality shifting people basically using tiktok to re-enchant their yes. lives and they do so on a basis that is highly individualized it's highly customized mm. and so i think in this world where we have these technologies and people are able to create their own meaning and create their own enchantments, something like Disney just isn't going to have the same hold over the imagination. It's not going to have that same power. And in that sense, I mean, the demise of, of Disney and its influence is almost a bit like the decline of institutional religion. Mm. You, know, you go from having this collective yeah. um, kind of hub of of kind of symbols things which which shape the imagination of of the of the populace um you go from having that to a sort of much more postmodern people doing it for themselves alternative spirituality likewise the kind of enchantment that one could get from disney could now be accessed on tiktok or something like that so i think that's probably the might yeah. be my my verdict what's your verdict yaroslav um i'd agree i don't think they're doing it very well anymore um i i would have uh, agree with um, Esme's analysis. Um, there, is, there is too much choice. Uh, I was having this conversation um, before the podcast. Um, we don't live in a world of three, four, five channels anymore. We live mm. in a world where you can access exactly what you want, tailor-made by an algorithm for you. So that in itself is not Disney's fault. Um, it's just living in that world. Mm. Um, but I also, I think it's just gotten too big. It's, it's ironic actually, as, as, as the ability to get what you want from culture mm. and your own version of enchantment has grown. Um, so is Disney, and Disney has been buying up all sorts of other companies. It now owns Lucasfilm, it owns Marvel. Um, I think it's it's gotten too big to actually be able to put in the time and and effort to to be genuinely creative. I think I think you you need to when you get to a certain size and you're just constantly pumping out content. Mm. Um, you again you turn in on yourself a little bit. They're not. They're not bored enough as a company. They don't have enough time and space to just sit mm. to produce something original. They're going back to um, existing intellectual property mm. uh, that they know makes money and pumping out yes. more and more versions of that that, you know, there's, there's diminishing returns. Ever, ever more, you know, spin-offs of uh, Star Wars and yeah. ever, ever more yeah. remakes of yeah. old, the old films. Yeah. If, you, if you read the, the Star Wars novels, there's this entire world post the original trilogy of, of uh, it's not in the canon, anymore but the extended universe of star wars 
People love it. It is dull as sin. They go into detail on <laughs> every single planet and what species is living there. It's it's it's. You it's could do the same with Tolkien, to be fair, you in could. Lord of the Rings. I have. I, I mean, and Tolkien does. Yeah. <laughs> he does the history of every tree branch. But, but mm. I, I guess that's in the way that Tolkien did did enchant a whole generation of readers. Um, and, and maybe Amazon have slightly spoiled his legacy, according to some purists, you know, with their latest version of it. I don't know. Is is can, can are we just living in a disenchanted age where it's harder to do that? Could could even Tolkien manage, I suppose, to to have the same effect today that he he once had? Ooh, that's a good question. Mm. I'm sorry, sorry to, to chuck a deep one. No, in I'm looking forward to the answer to this one. Oh, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I, I I think I would probably, I suppose, reiterate my point about how it's just really hard to capture yeah. an audience in that way. There's this there's this book, which I think is probably quite relevant to this conversation, called um, The Romantic Ethic and the Spirit of Consumerism by an author called Colin Campbell. So it's obviously a play on the, the Weberian idea. Um, and and his, his point is, is very much that, whereas, you know, we've gone from a society where enchantment, kind of that romantic um, kind of enchantment is, is belonging to these kind of vast cultural phenomena um it now is so much more personalized and consumerism has allowed us to to um yeah sort of experience that enchantment at that very personal level so it's not that there aren't great authors although well that's another question are there still people who are capable of writing such works but i just i think the culture would mm. make it very hard for something to be received in that in that way mm. I'd, I'd agree. I think um, part of the... It's all been agreement. Um, I think, I think um, you know, part of what made Disney the, the cultural force that it was was that, uh, you know, when it was first founded, um, I don't assume every person on the original Disney staff was a believing Christian, but, you know, it's that, it's that Tom Holland point of it's, it's the read, radioactivity in the air that we breathe. It's, they mm. were just... They were living in a culture. Mm. They, was, they were swimming um, in, in, you know... Christian waters that, that believed in, in transcendental ideas and could tell stories that pointed beyond the individual and, and beyond the world um, to enchant. Um, so, and we don't live in that age anymore. And I think Disney's too big and chasing money. Um, so I think 100 years is quite a good run. I think it's probably time uh, if Disney can't be taken over for, for a new <laughs> You know, small independent animation studio. Oh, this is a hot take. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't have to be staffed um, <laughs> entirely by Christians, of course, but but um, people who actually believe in something outside of their immediate reality mm. um, are the people who create enchantment. If you mm. don't have that mm. as the, the warp and weft of your life, you're mm. not going to produce something enchanting. You're going to mm. produce something materialist and basic that will distract for an hour and a half, uh, take you out of the drudgery, of, uh, of you know this uh, Marxist hellhole of, 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 cap of capitalism and alienation from one's work. Um, uh, it, Marx described it as a hellhole. We are not living in a Marxist hellhole. Don't at me on Twitter. Um, uh, but uh, but it, it takes people who who would yes. actually believe mm. in something beyond themselves and beyond this age mm. and this world. Um, and those people do exist. It's mm. much harder to get their voices out there, but it's not impossible. Mm. And God is good. He'll. He'll build them up when it's time. <laughs> they absolutely do exist. And I think about um, uh, Francis Bufford. We had him on in season one and he said, we are meaning making creatures. Inherently, we can't stop making enchantments. Um, which, interesting, framing it with you, good, bad, everything in between enchantments. But I like to think that's still the case. I like to think we're still, there's still a belief-shaped need within us. And um, like you say, I like to think those people and those stories are still out there and there may be a resurgence. I like to think our imaginations are you know, not completely done away with and things like that. But um, 
This has been such a great yeah. conversation. We, uh, we could go on for another we hour could. and I'd we be could. quite happy. Yes, but we, we will have to draw it to a close here. <laughs> yeah. um, perhaps we'll meet uh, at the 200th anniversary. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the transhumanism. That, that is, yeah. The we'd Walt have Disney to... himself was cryogenically frozen. That's right. So well, maybe we could, we could have him on. Yeah. 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 We could have him on for the next thing. In Jar's Futurama style. It sounds like a Disney movie. Anyway, thank you so much for being with us, Yaroslav. And it's been great to have you on this special edition of the show. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Reenchanting podcast. Do subscribe to listen back to all our past episodes and help others to discover the show by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also find more videos, articles, and resources at seenandunseen.com. See you next time.